With all the faithful, let us pray today to the Lord, who is our hiding place in times of trouble and who embraces us with compassion and mercy and love and hope. We pray for all who are hungry, whether hungry for power and glory or hungry for a simple meal. God, show the mighty that you alone can satisfy their deepest need and feed the poor from the abundance among your creation and your people. We pray for the church in times of trial, whether tested by intense change or tempted by the safety of the status quo. Give us peace when anger and fear threaten to divide and challenge us when we are too comfortable in this world. We pray for leaders in high places, whether determined to help those who suffer or those distant from the cries of the oppressed. Open their eyes, God, to see your saving power at work and open their ears to hear your prophet's calls for justice. We pray, God, for those who are hurting and grieving, those exhausted and depleted, those angry and desperate for change. We pray for those battling illness of body, mind, and spirit. We pray for hurting communities and families devastated by war and violence. God, bring your light into the dark places and your touch where there are wounds that need healing. As we journey these 40 days in Lent in whatever wilderness and temptation we are walking, instruct us, God, in the way that we should go and let your steadfast love surround us always. Now, God, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together will be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, have you ever learned that you've been misusing a word? It was our former pastor, Doyle Sager, who, with great grace and kindness, informed me after one of my very first sermons that there is a difference between a moot point and a mute point. You see, moot means, you know, nothing to pay attention to, it's irrelevant, while mute means to be completely silent, which is what I wish I had been when I used mute instead of moot in my sermon. In one of my very favorite movies, The Princess Bride, the word inconceivable is repeatedly used by the Sicilian criminal mind, Vassini. He's a bully and a narcissist, and he declares inconceivable anytime his plans go awry, and when what he says couldn't possibly happen is actually literally happening. And after snatching Princess Buttercup, Vassini and his henchmen board a ship to hide from the prince's army. And one of Vicini's henchmen, Inigo, says, is it, is it possible that we might be followed? And that would be inconceivable, Vicini replies. And while Inigo continues to look back, wondering if they're being followed, Vicini doubles down, repeating, as I told you, it would be absolutely, totally, in all other ways, inconceivable. 
Well, after they realize someone is indeed following them, Vassini then casually goes, they go onto a shore and they climb this rope up this cliff to escape. And the one who's following them, the man in black, also gets out of his boat and climbs this rope. And Vassini looks down over the cliff and says, inconceivable. Well, when they're up at the top, Vassini and Ego, Fezzik with Princess Buttercup, they decide that they're going to cut the rope so that the man in black will fall to his death. So they cut it. Vassini looks over the side of the cliff and he sees the, black, the man in black holding on and beginning to climb up. And Vassini says, he didn't fall? Inconceivable. And finally, finally, his friend Inigo responds, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> the humor lies in the fact that despite Vassini's consistent use of the term, the events unfolding are almost definitely conceivable. They're actually happening right in front of them. They're not improbable. They might be impossible to him, but they are actually happening. Vassini utters one more inconvincible right before he dies, when the poison that he intended for the man in black is the one that he takes. He never changed his mind or expanded his mind that he might misunderstand inconceivable and what is conceivable. And I wonder, when was the last time that you ever changed or expanded your mind? Most of us may think we're open-minded and responsive to new information. And you actually might be a little offended if I say this morning that you and me are not as open-minded as we'd like to think. See, changing our minds about something, especially something or someone very important, is not easy to do. It takes time and a lot of effort. It requires empathy and humility and courage and vulnerability and respect. It's a skill. And most all of us have a skill in that area that we need to develop more. In conversations with those that we disagree with, our default tendency is to look for an opportunity to refute rather than to understand. In that moment, we want the other person to change their mind. But when was the last time we ever expanded or changed our mind about something? Well, if it makes you feel any better, humans have always struggled to expand or change their mind, to think and see in new ways. We resist challenges to what we've always known and believed. This is as true for us, for us today as it was for those who walked with Jesus in that first century. Mark's gospel doesn't waste any time. Mark spends no time on birth stories or a young Jesus ditching his parents to go to the temple. Mark begins chapter 1, in one verse, with these words, the beginning of the good news of Jesus. And then, in a few sentences later, Jesus enters the scene as a man. In a few verses, Mark summarizes Jesus' baptism and subsequent time in the wilderness. And if we only had Mark's gospel, this one gospel, we wouldn't know anything of John the Baptist's protest about being unworthy to baptize Jesus. We wouldn't know any of the details about how Jesus was tempted three times by Satan in the wilderness and his responses. Of Jesus' 40-day wilderness journey, on which the 40 days in Lent is patterned, we're told that the Spirit forces Jesus into the wilderness among the wild beasts, where he is tempted by Satan and tended to by angels. 
Mark's account seems to focus not on details, but on what these two events confirm about who Jesus is, both to Jesus and to others, and what it means for what is coming. And so after five quick sentences summarizing two of these very big events in Jesus' life, Jesus exits the wilderness, and he has an announcement on his mind and his lips, and he says this in verse 15, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. And in the days, months, and three years to follow, that announcement has nearly everyone, including the disciples, repeating Vassini's infamous words, inconceivable, or whatever it would be in the Greek. Speaking of words that we use that perhaps do not mean what we think they mean, let's talk a moment about the words repent and good news. The word that Jesus uses in verse 15 is the Greek word metanoia, meaning to expand or change your mind. There are other Greek words that we translate repent with different meanings, but in this verse, Jesus is saying repent or expand or change your mind about you what you think the good news is. You see, for the Jews that were listening to Jesus, they have desperately waited and prayed for centuries for God to show up and to do something about all that was wrong. They didn't think it was inconceivable that God would do this. Even though they had moments of doubt and it seemed like it was taking forever, they believed that God would rescue them and that God's kingdom would prevail. What was inconceivable, what was impossible for them to even imagine was how God would do this. The people of God believed it would happen in a certain way. The overthrow of destruction of their oppressor, the Roman Empire. The establishment of the nation of Israel again. And like the good old days when King David was on the throne. That's the kingdom that God would set up. But when Jesus began teaching about the last being first, loving enemies forgiving others, challenging oppressors, and get this, the son of man suffering and dying, well, they struggled to repent. They struggled to change or expand their minds. Because when Jesus called them to embrace the radical, self-sacrificial way of Christ as the way that God would bring about God's kingdom, Jesus encountered more resistance and rejection than repentance and changed minds. Marilyn McCord Adams writes, In Mark's gospel, the experience of Jesus' first disciples stands as a warning. Because the twelve could not loosen their grip in advance on what they believed and what they thought was going to happen, because they could not loosen their grip in advance, Golgotha, where Jesus died, it became the liminal space where their old meanings crashed and burned leaving them no choice but to despair or to beg for new ones. What they'd always believed to be the way came crashing down in the way that Jesus lived out the mission and went to the cross. And in that space of that time, they had to decide, do they live in despair because what they thought was going to happen didn't happen? 
or do they expand their mind? You see, the Savior of the world, suffering and dying on the cross, was inconceivable to the disciples. This was not how it was supposed to be. How can God rescue them and establish a new kingdom if those in power kill him? How can God do this? What kind of Savior doesn't pick up a sword and fight? What kind of Savior lowers himself to wash the feet of others? What kind of Savior allows himself to be killed? What kind of Savior? The kind of Savior who hears us proclaim good news and responds, you keep using that word, and I'm not sure it means what you think it means. In our text, Jesus directs us to expand our mind and believe or fully surrender ourselves to the good news. And what is the good news, according to Jesus? It's what he's just shared. The good news is that the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, has come. It is near, not meaning it's on the outskirts of town waiting to come in. It is near us, around us. And in us, we must expand our mind in order to see it. We must move from our finite human perspective about what a kingdom might look like, with earthly kings and fixed borders, and expand it to a broader, more comprehensive, divine perspective with a heavenly king with no borders at all. See, the heart of the gospel is the call to change the way that we see the world, to expand beyond our rigid boundaries and beliefs, and to begin to see things in a new way, in God's ways. Because this, too, is repentance. The repentance that Jesus is talking about in verse 15. You see, for Jesus, the good news was that the ever-present realm of God is with us and among us a realm far more just and generous than we could ever imagine. It was a thing that Jesus talked about more than anything. The kingdom was the central heartbeat and mission of his message. He believed and he announced that the kingdom of God or heaven is here. It's mentioned over a hundred times throughout the Gospels. And Jesus says, "I, I know this good news is inconceivable to you, But expand your mind and surrender yourself or believe in the kingdom of God. And then Jesus preached and he taught and he demonstrated over and over and over again what the kingdom of God looks like. It's where loving God and loving others is the ultimate priority. It names and calls out evil. It liberates people from what enslaves them. It's like a mustard seed, so tiny it would be easy to overlook, but with the potential to be larger than life itself. It's like a pearl, so lovely and rare that you would sell everything to possess it. It's like a treasure buried in a field, one you find when you aren't even looking for it. It's like yeast, so small that it's practically invisible, but it can be bring potential significant growth, making dough rise dramatically into baked bread. The kingdom of God might be hard for us to see sometimes, but it is near, and it is very much good news. God at work in our lives might be hard to see sometimes. It might even feel inconceivable to us, 
because of how messed up things are or how many messes that we've made. Yet Jesus says to us, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe. God is with us right now, here in the valleys of life. God's peace, grace, mercy, freedom, justice, goodness, restoration is all right here if we allow God to expand our mind and to surrender ourselves where love for God and others is our ultimate priority. And when we repent and believe, when we expand our mind and we surrender ourselves to this good news, the kingdom will come near. Kate Bowler is a modern-day poet who writes powerful reflections on life and faith. She's also a Duke professor, a podcaster, and a New York Times best-selling author with a single mission, according to her, which is to give you permission to feel human, to feel all the things honestly. And in her newest book, Have a Beautiful, Terrible Day, she shares a reflection titled, Seeing God Everywhere. And let me share it with you today. The world, this world, feels solid through and through. Nothing is more obvious than who's in and who's out. The numbers at the bottom of these credit card bills and the worried lines around our eyes and mouths. Just ask anyone. Nothing is happening except headlines and a new season of Netflix and the rumbling of wars near and far. Then we squint. There you are, shimmering at the edges of some extravagant act of love. There you are, quickening our steps toward your surprising favorites, the weak and poor and scared, the last becoming first, those who can't squeeze through the eye of the needle. There you are calling us strong when we are weak, telling us to link arms with those who suffer, explaining how justice will invert the order of things. The world feels solid through and through, God. Help me squint and see you better. There you are, God. As we journey through these 40 days in Lent, may we learn to squint, framing out all the peripheral so that we might see better and more clearly God's kingdom here and now. And seeing better, may our minds expand and may we fully surrender our lives to the radical, self-sacrificial way of Christ. Thanks be to God.